0: Tonight we begin a short Bible study series. It's the first midweek series in our new sanctuary. And because it's the first series, I've chosen to teach on the most important subject that we ever teach on at CCC. And that is how to be saved. Because you can't go to heaven if you haven't experienced salvation the number of christians on this planet and the number of people in heaven are probably two of the most over exaggerated numbers in human history you listen to any funeral of any person that's lived any kind of lifestyle and you would think that everybody's going to heaven but scripture makes it clear that everybody on this planet is not going to heaven That is both an awesome and fearful responsibility for the church, and it's also something that we need to be very clear that we understand and that we can teach that and tell that to others. And so this first midweek series in our sanctuary, I wanted to teach on this because it's so very important. We teach on a lot of subjects over the course of a year, you know that. I hope all of them are helpful and we try to make every series, no matter which pastor's teaching or preaching, we try to make them as interesting and inspiring as possible. And and tonight, a lot of people from around the world, they joined along with our church and follow along with us. And we're very thankful for all of you that watch with us. But no matter which Bible study series may have been your personal favorite thus far, please hear me when I tell you that nothing I have ever said to you will be more important than the subject that we will cover in this series. If you don't get this, nothing else matters. If you don't get this, all your Bible knowledge amounts to nothing. And so we begin tonight. Series come from different places and different ideas. and, And this one came from an unusual spot. It's from a book in my library. 14 years ago in 2007 a, a wonderful author named Max Lucado he wrote a book called 316 the numbers of hope. I've had that on my bookshelf forever. I bought it several years ago. But this year I finally had the time. It kind of got closer to the top of the stack and I finally took the time to read it. Now Lucado is an able wordsmith and he's a great storyteller. So any of his books I've ever read are always very engaging. And of course, 3.16 refers to John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible. And he even started the book with a chapter called The Most Famous Conversation in the Bible, describing the nighttime meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, which resulted in the most famous verse in the Bible. So how can you go wrong with that? Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me tell you, that is one powerful verse of scripture. Lucato describes John 3.16 this way, quote, A 26-word parade of hope. He's reading from the NIV. There's one verse, one word less in the King James. A 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. We all need the reminder. The heart of the human problem is the heart of the human. And God's treatment is prescribed in John 3.16. He loves, he gave, we believe, we live, end of quote. That's beautiful, isn't it? And I couldn't agree more. As long as you realize that John 3.16 is the beginning of your spiritual journey and not the end of it. I have no problem with anything he said as long as you define believe like the Bible defines believe. Because one of our problems in modern Christendom is that we've dumbed down belief to mean accepting the Lord as your personal savior. And that's a a concept that unfortunately doesn't make a single appearance anywhere in scripture. And that idea basically says, well, Jesus does everything for you. All you have to do is accept it. You don't have to do anything, change anything or obey anything. And unfortunately, the result of that is that you can kind of ignore the rest of the Bible. To hear many preachers today, you would think, that the New Testament church is just an incidental historical addendum to the gospel accounts. You would think from the preaching and teaching you encounter that the book of Acts might be an exciting story, but the preaching of the apostles and the experience of the first Christians, well, that's optional for the modern church. If you listened to too much of that teaching and preaching, you'd come to the conclusion that while the epistles might be interesting letters, the strong teaching of these men who literally laid down their lives for the gospel has somehow become irrelevant in our enlightened age. Today, it's become acceptable in many quarters of Christianity to ignore the doctrine of the New Testament church altogether. As if preachers living 2,000 years after the fact that we somehow understand what Jesus meant far better than Peter and Paul did. It's a tragedy. It's a travesty. Our generation is inundated with armchair theologians and lazy boy Christians who think Google can give them a better grasp on the gospel than James and John from the New Testament. Churches and denominations today quote the Apostles' Creed, and they don't even stop to think that not a single apostle penned even a single word of that creed. They'd been dead for a few hundred years when it was written. Isn't that astounding to you? When the apostles were the ones entrusted with preaching the gospel and starting the church and they were entrusted with that commission by Jesus himself. Today we even hear inane statements like, well, I love Jesus, but I just don't love the church. Ever heard anybody say that? I love Jesus, but not the church. Now to me, that grieves me. The arrogance is shocking. When Jesus gave his life and shed his blood for the church. When the church is his body here on earth and his bride forever in eternity, I can't imagine that anybody would slap Jesus in the face by saying, I love you, but I don't like your church. Don't try that with me in Beverly. Don't tell me you don't love my bride, but you love me. I don't want to hear it. And Jesus doesn't either. These people say they're Christians, but they have little or nothing at all to do with the church. And this group now comprises 10% of the population in North America, this group, that say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church or I don't have anything to do with the church. 10% of North America. They are growing so rapidly that they now have their own statistical category. They're called de-churched. They've removed themselves from the church. Now, if you look at the graph there, you'll notice that millennials are very low. That's not because there's a lot of millennials who love Jesus but don't like the church. Unfortunately, millennials are quickly disconnecting from Jesus and the church. And it's an emergency situation spiritually in our world. But because this group, if you look at, you know, my my generation, the boomers, you you look across that chart, it's it's quite stunning because this generation, these people, they function as spiritual lone rangers. We are de-churched. We, we still love Jesus. We still read the Bible some. We still pray once in a while, but we just don't do church. And because they function as spiritual lone rangers, they are quickly reverting not from, not to de-churched, but to unchurched. Barna reports that the number of practicing Christians in North America has dropped more than 50% in the last 20 years since the year 2000. In other words, if your idea is I love Jesus, but not the church, that philosophy is one of the quickest ways to ensure you will forfeit your Christian faith altogether. So I come to this pulpit in this beautiful sanctuary to look at all you wonderful people and tell you that church has never been more important. I'm not even talking about the building. I'm thankful for that. But church, your relationship with the body of Christ has never been more important. Now this next part may be a little emotionally jarring because it doesn't sound at all like most of the preaching or teaching that you hear today. But I want you to listen closely to this final tearful warning from the Apostle Paul to the elders of Ephesus. He knows he's probably going to be arrested on his next journey. He knows that if that happens, it will result in death. He knows that this is probably the last time he'll see his friends and these wonderful people in God's church. And here's what he says. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, Why are you pure from the blood of all men? Why don't you have anybody's blood on your hands? Why don't you bear any responsibility for them, Paul? Here's why. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I told you everything that God said not just the part you wanted to hear, not just the part that made you feel good. I shared with you all the counsel of God. And so he says to these elders, he's leaving the church in their hands. And he says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. I don't know about you, but that last phrase of that verse still stops me. It still stuns me a little that I get the privilege of being part of the only thing on this planet that cost heaven the blood of God's Son. There's not a building, there's not a wonder of the world, there's not any important person on this planet that's that expensive or that dear to heaven. But you and I have the beautiful privilege of being part of the church which is purchased with the blood of God. So when I look at the church, I know we're just human. I know when when you got humans, you got opinions. And where you got opinions, you usually got problems. Doesn't happen here, but think of all those other poor churches where it happens. But I have to say with Pilate, who said this about Jesus, I have to look at the church and say, when I think of what the church has done for me and my family, When I think of how the church reached me and preached to me and loved me and embraced me and helped me. And for many of us, the church has lifted us up when we fell and and brought us back when we failed and prayed for us when we couldn't pray for ourselves. When I think of that, I have to say with Pilate, when I look at the church, I find no fault in the church. I don't have a hard luck story or a complaint. I don't have any long list of grievances because I thank God for the church that he gave us. Paul said, for this I know, after my departing, when I'm dead and gone, grievous wolves will enter in among you and they won't spare the flock. They will have a motive that is not pure. They will have a motive that is not right. Grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. He said, here's what they'll do. Of your own selves, people that you knew, people that you thought were on the level, people that you thought embraced Jesus and his word, those people, they will arise and they will speak perverse things. And they will try to draw disciples away after themselves. They'll come up with an idea that's not really scriptural. They'll come up with an easier way to do things. They'll come up with a slightly different doctrine and and, and they will draw disciples away after themselves. They will speak perverse, twisted things. And so Paul says to these men, therefore watch and remember something that your old pastor, your old apostle, your old elder, by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. To which I say, and I know I'm addressing more than the people in the building tonight. If you're watching online, you need to thank God if you've got a church and if you've got a preacher that doesn't just go with the flow or go with what's easy or go with just whatever everybody accepts, but if he actually looks into the Word of God and declares the Word of God to you, you have one of the greatest privileges on this planet because you have a man of God or a woman of God that loves you enough to tell you the truth from the Word of God. Now, I prayed, I asked the Lord not to let me say anything out of line, guard my mouth, That's a big job even for the Lord. I want to say everything needs to be said and not say anything that doesn't need to be said. But we live in a strange era, theologically speaking. The main value of today's culture is supposed to be tolerance of other viewpoints. And that idea has certainly influenced the church world. The dictionary defines tolerance as respect for opinions, beliefs, and practices that differ from one's own. So Christians, we ought to be tolerant. We should have respect for opinions and beliefs and practices that differ from our own. If you get into arguments with people about the Bible, you're not helping them see the truth of the Bible. If you blast people and bash them over the head with the doctrine that you say you love, you don't love it enough to want them to have it because you're chasing them away with it. And so we should have tolerance. We do believe in tolerance. However, the new politically correct dogma that has infected our world now declares that tolerance must mean agreement. So then... If you don't agree with everything they want, they can then brand you as intolerant, harmful, dangerous, worthy of disdain or censure or even persecution. And tragically, that idea that everybody has to agree and everybody has to conform, that idea has infected the church world. Please hear me. If you don't hear anything else tonight... I'm just laying out a foundation for the next few weeks here. To say that all truths are equal, that everybody has their own truth, please hear me, that's a logical fallacy. Two plus two can't equal four and equal five at the same time. Either reincarnation is true Or once you die and after death, the judgment is true. They are mutually exclusive. All truths are not equal. One is right and one is wrong. You better know why you believe what you believe. You better have confidence in the word of God. But here's our challenge. I'm not even talking about all those other religions Even major Christian denominations teach vastly different ideas about the creeds, about the inerrancy of Scripture... About the method of baptism, the reality of the Holy Ghost, the authority of the Pope, the nature of the Virgin Mary, predestination, eternal security, faith and works, justification and sanctification, and the plan of salvation itself. There are so many different opinions and doctrines and ideas that it's a theological and logical nightmare. They contradict each other on so many points they can't all be right that's a logical fallacy and so if you think i'm coming to the pulpit to bash somebody else that disagrees with what we believe you're sorely mistaken we love everybody enough to stand in this pulpit and preach the truth of god's word We don't try to control anybody, manipulate anybody, force anybody, shame anybody, guilt anybody. And if you do that, stop it in Jesus' name. You're not helping. But what we do is we love this, we believe this, we teach this, we preach this, and we live this most of all. Because truth is important. Truth is critical. So... In the Christian world today, they've come up with a unique solution for this logical fallacy, for this theological ball of opinions. Here's their solution let's just ignore the inconsistencies and promote unity over theology, and let's dumb down doctrine to the lowest possible common denominator. You've probably heard their mantra. Let's just love Jesus and forget doctrine because we're all going to the same place anyway. And I've never done this, but every time I hear that, I just want to stand up and go, eh. wrong answer. Because it's a logical fallacy. It's a theological conundrum. Forget doctrine? Really? Really? the apostles would have had just a little bit of a problem with that. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, and when I installed you as pastor there, when I went into Macedonia, Timothy, here's what I said. You charge those people that they teach no other doctrine. Don't you change it one little bit. He said later in the same letter, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Raymond, you better preach apostolic doctrine, because apostolic doctrine is the only thing that's going to save you and save those people that have honored you and privileged you to talk to them every week, so you better not stray from it. He wrote to another young protege. Named Titus, he said, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. He's talking to Titus about how you put elders in place. As he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine. Everyone say sound doctrine. He said, Titus, this is so important. By sound doctrine, you can exhort and convince the gainsayers. He said again to Titus, Titus, I want you to do something else. When you preach... When you teach a Bible study, when you witness, when you talk to people, you speak the things which become sound doctrine. Don't you be chasing any of these theories. Don't you be chasing any of these ideas because you could put something in their mind that's a little seed that bears false doctrine and takes them off course. So you only speak to them things that will grow up in their lives into sound doctrine. And finally, in the book of Romans, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, I want you to mark them which cause divisions and offenses. Now, if you're not careful reading that, you'll miss it. Because a lot of people today say that if you stand up for doctrine, you're causing division. If you stand up for truth, you're causing an offense. It's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He said, I beg you, brethren, I beseech you, mark those people that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Don't let them be speaking into your life. Don't let them be impacting your opinion. They are creating division." not by standing there not by standing up for doctrine that's not what creates division it's when you let doctrine go it's when you act contrary to the doctrine you've been taught that's when you're causing division so the apostles are pretty serious about this now let me just talk to you it's just us few hundred thousand friends on the internet hi I haven't met many people who don't like our church. I really haven't, which is amazing because I'm part of this church. And there's days I don't like me very much. But I haven't met many people who don't like our church. Over and over, our guests speak about the move of God that is here. Don't you ever be ashamed of the move of God. That's what everybody talks about when they come here. Oh, there's such a move of God. Oh, there's such a depth of the Spirit. So all of you Pentecostal people, would you not just kind of sit on that? We need to embrace that and love that and exercise that and utilize that because that's what people are hungry for is the genuine, authentic move of the Spirit. But here's the thing. While they sense what is different many of them can't put their finger on why it is different. Let me answer that in one word. Here's what is different and why it is different. One word, doctrine. You say, really, doctrine? Yeah. We teach what the New Testament church taught We try to do what the New Testament church did, and that's why we get to experience what the New Testament church experienced. So yes, if you want to know the difference, the difference is Bible doctrine. Now here's an Old Testament verse for you. In Deuteronomy, God spoke, he said, my doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. In other words, God's saying, Bible doctrine is heaven sent. Teaching, that's what doctrine is. It's not dead, dry, dull, and boring. Doctrine is heaven-sent teaching. It's like a rain that brings revival and refreshing and restoration. You can't have a real, biblical, genuine, authentic move of God unless you've got Bible doctrine in the mix there somewhere. Now, we sometimes get emails. Does anybody here get emails? I bet you don't get as many as I get. We sometimes get emails from people who say, I would love to come to your church if you would change. Honest. They do. Before they ever show up, I would love to come to your church if you would just change. (laughs) It's like saying, I would love to come visit your house if you would just paint the siding and build a garage. If you would just drop your apostolic doctrine and your Pentecostal distinctives, I'd come. That happens all the time. In fact, I got another email just this week from a person who wants me to state that obeying Acts 2.38 isn't mandatory. And if I state that obeying Acts 2.38 isn't mandatory, then they might start attending CCC. Unfortunately, I was preparing for this series at the time. (laughs) Oops. So I had my answer ready. I had to dial it back and down a few times. But I said with as much, and this is email, and so it sounds a little more blunt than it is because it was longer than this, but I, I, I said with as much gentleness as I could, you're looking for a church to interpret the Bible in accordance with what you believe. Unfortunately, we're not that kind of church. However, there are other groups, some in town, they they adapt their doctrines over time in an attempt to accommodate all those that wish to attend. And perhaps one of them would be more acceptable to you. But again, CCC is not that kind of church. And here's what I said. You're welcome to come as you are, but we're going to remain as we are. No amount of argument will change that. The message the apostles preached is too important. The salvation Jesus paid for is too precious. The experience we have is too wonderful and eternity is far too long to get it wrong. And and that's it. I'm not trying to be mean or cantankerous or argumentative. I'm just trying to say, we like this book of Acts experience. No, we that's not true. We love this book of Acts experience, it has changed our lives. For many of us, it has totally renovated our families. And, and we now see the benefit just in this church of one generation teaching another generation, teaching another generation. And we watch the difference when your kids grow up and they know something about apostolic truth. It's amazing. It's amazing. 316, The Numbers of Hope. That was the book that kind of got this series started. And yes, they are. 316, John 316, that's The Numbers of Hope. Hope is powerful. And in Scripture, hope means a confident expectation. Unlike in the world where hope is often accompanied by doubt, we say, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. You just put your hope together with doubt. That's the world. But in Scripture, our hope is secure in Jesus because he never changes. There's no doubt associated with him. Unlike in the world where hope is sometimes followed by the word so. You know, you say, will I go to heaven? Well, I hope so. You see, we're always adding doubt into hope in the world. But in the scripture, we can look into the future and into eternity with confidence in God and total absolute confidence in the promise of his word. But here's the catch. That only works if we have obeyed his word. It's not just if we know about his word or we've heard some intellectually stimulating dialogue about his word or we've heard some engaging, creative teaching about his word. No, it's only if we've obeyed his word. I'm not just playing with semantics here. I'm not just picking at the words. I I actually enjoyed the little book. God has made a way for us to be saved. And the message of John 3.16, that is the hope of the world. Because if God had never loved, and if God had never given, and if God had never come to this earth, we would have no opportunity to believe or to live. But please hear me, I'm almost finished. Hope doesn't accomplish much unless that hope leads you to help. Help means to provide what is necessary, to render assistance, to contribute strength, to bring deliverance, to rescue, to save. So there's more to the Bible than 316. There's also 238, the numbers of help. On the first day of church history, after the first sermon of church history peter gave the first altar call of church history he had preached about the death burial and resurrection of jesus he had shared the hope of john 3:16 but you see these people like you and me they were sinners and in their case they had actually been responsible for crucifying Jesus. So, yes, they needed hope, but they also needed help. And that's what they asked for. They'd already been told about the hope, but now they asked for help. How do we participate in God's great gift? Of love? How can we be forgiven of our sins? How can we have a relationship with this God who loves us? How can we be saved? What do we do? And on the first day of church history, Peter answered that question in a way that is vastly different than a lot of the ideas you hear today. Here's the setting He is not being kind and gentle. He is preaching. Therefore, he's probably got his finger going at him. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified. He made him Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, here it is how do we get some help how you've preached to us about what god did but but now how do we respond what should we do men and brethren what shall we do and here's 238 then peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the holy ghost so so right there you see the setup Peter says, you're the sinners, you're in trouble with God, He's Lord in Christ. There's no way around Jesus. Whatever you do, Jesus is the only name that's going to matter when you get in eternity. Not any other teacher of any other religion. The only name that you're going to bow before, the only name that your tongue is going to confess is the name of Jesus. So since Jesus is both Lord and Christ, you've got to figure out how to do what Jesus wants you to do if you're gonna be in his eternal kingdom. So that's the setup. And then Peter gives the answer, the solution. Here's what you do. You repent, you get baptized and God fills you with the Holy Ghost. If you'll do what you can do, God will do what only he can do. And then he gives the punchline because it wasn't just for 2000 years ago. I had a preacher sitting with with me at lunch one time, a few years back. It happened in this city, actually. And he looked at me and he said, well, yeah, that's what Peter said that day. But if they'd asked him the following week, he might've said something different. If they'd asked him two months later or a year later, he'd have probably given them a different way. I don't believe that for one split Second. Because I'm dealing with the word of God and I'm dealing with the doctrine that was good enough for the first century church and the writers of the epistles. And so I don't have any authority and I don't have the gall to change that and tell you sweet people something different. It's still the same 2,000 years later as it was on the day of Pentecost. So here's the good news though. Although that was the solution and it was given on that day, it carries on from generation to generation. For the promise is unto you, that's all the people standing there, and to your children, that's all their kids. But then he jumps the traces because what he just said was you, Jewish people, and your kids, Jewish people. But Peter, the spirit of prophecy hit him and he said it's going to happen for all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I would add a P.S. Even some people in Fredericton in the year of our Lord 2021 there's going to be some people that love it, that embrace it, that obey it and that experience it and that is 238. I'm glad it's still open today. If you want the hope of John 3.16, you will need the help of Acts 2.38. And in this series, we're going to examine exactly what the first century church taught about salvation. Because there is no more important subject in the Bible. There is no more important decision that you must make for eternity. Only you can make the choice to experience it for yourself. We are going to love everybody, even if they disagree with us. We're going to love people that don't even know Jesus and don't even like Jesus. Don't even believe in Jesus. We're going to love them anyway. We're going to reach for everybody we possibly can reach for. But at the end of the day, when it all comes down, and church, when somebody says, what do I need to do to have a relationship with God? That is not the moment to fumble the ball and mumble the answer and give them some kind of discount, easy on the emotions version with all the love you could possibly have in your heart. And with all the concern for them that you could possibly have, that's the moment to say, Here's what they did in the first century. Here's what the first Christians did. And I'm glad to be part of a church where the 21st century Christians still do what the first century Christians did. And the 21st century Christians still preach what the first century Christians preached. That's what this series is about. I'm excited about it. I hope you'll come back. We're going to unpack all of that. And we're going to go a whole lot deeper and further. But tonight, as I sat down to prepare this, I was just pushed totally off course. Look at this. I wanted to show you some charts and scriptures flying everywhere. And, but the Lord just said, we got an issue Because there's so many conflicting messages floating around. It's possible even for the very elect to be deceived in the last of the last days. So before you dive into it, Raymond, just pause to say, there's a whole lot of conflicting opinions and ideas. And we've got to decide whether we believe this or whether we just kind of accommodate everything, every idea, every doctrine. As for me and my house, it's this. All the way, 100% all the way. And so with the help of the Lord, I'm going to try to unpack that over the next few weeks. And I hope you can be here. You do not have to wait till the end of this series to experience any of that. How stupid would that be? If you'd like to be baptized in Jesus' name, they tell me, Pastor Jack said, we're missing a part on the baptistry. Apostolic church, missing a part on the baptistry. That ain't good. But we've got a river just down over the hill. And if you'd like to be baptized in Jesus' name, you do not have to wait. Because it's that important. If you need to repent of your sins, we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But you can ask God for forgiveness of your sins anytime You don't have to wait for the end of a sermon. You don't have to wait for a particular emotion. You don't have to wait for any of that. Just obey the scripture. There's nothing more important than that. Could I pray for you? Would you lift up your hands and would you just pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for these people that have given me kind attention tonight. I'm so thankful for a church that does believe this and does preach this and practice this. Lord God that's a heavy and weighty responsibility. We've got a city with people that don't know you. We've got a people, we've got people in this city that have never been inside the door of any kind of church. Jesus, there's a message that you've given us. You've entrusted it to us. Help us to be good stewards of that message. Help us to realize it's not just for the preacher on Sunday in the building behind the pulpit, but it's for every one of us to do what you commissioned us to do, to go and be witnesses. Jesus, there are people here sitting under the sound of my voice that there are souls waiting on their witness. There are souls waiting on their testimony. Jesus, call your church in these last hours, call your church to a level of evangelism and a level of discipleship like we've never had before. I pray it in your name, Jesus, and I thank you for the message of the new birth. I thank you for the experience of the book of Acts. Jesus, we give you great glory and great honor and great praise tonight because out of 7.9 billion people, we have the honor and the great privilege of knowing your truth and experiencing it for ourselves. Go with us and use us to be your church this week in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Thank you for being part of Bible study tonight. Could we close this service with one last great praise to the Lord for the power of his word. I am so thankful for the Scripture and the authority of the Bible and the experience that we get to enjoy. There's nothing else like it anywhere on this planet. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is the earnest of your inheritance. Do you understand if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it dwells in you right now. It quickens your mortal body right now what an experience hallelujah thank you jesus oh thank you jesus well that felt really good why don't we just all stand and we'll do it one more time then we can spin around and head out of here but jesus is worthy of your praise this so great salvation that's what the bible says about it so great salvation It is joy unspeakable and full of glory that we have in our lives. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. My goodness. (laughs) What an honor, what a privilege it is to teach you. Somebody say, seven on Friday is prayer. Sunday, 10 a.m. and 6. Don't forget, our times have changed. So for all of you that like to catch a few extra winks, catch them on Saturday night (laughs) and get up on Sunday morning, 10 and 6. We're so excited. We're going to have a great day, great weekend in the house of the Lord. Lord bless you. We love you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.